0: Heavenly Father, we beseech thee. I kneel before you as a member of this age-old craft, praying to you for guidance as I am on a journey. A journey for more light, but more especially light that has been lost, forgotten, We're hidden among the ages gone by, the light that connects us with our very meaning and informs us of our purpose. Light locked deep within our past, beyond lips that no longer speak, and paths forgotten, no longer traveled. Aid me in my pursuit, Lord, for historical light. Hey everybody, welcome back to Historical Light, an independent Masonic show focused on the historical events and aspects within Freemasonry. As always, I'm your host, Brother Alex Powers, and I want to thank you for joining us once again today is episode number 14. We're very pleased to have on the show today Brother Walter Hunt, who is the Grand Historian for the state of Massachusetts. But before we get to that point, let's jump in with our friends over at MasonryToday.com and see just what happened in Masonic history today. Today in Masonic History, Mark Odom Hatfield passed away in 2011. Mark Hatfield was an American politician. He was born July 12, 1922 in Dallas, Oregon. At the age of 10, he had his first political experience when he campaigned for Herbert Hoover's re-election campaign. In the late 1930s, he worked as a tour guide in the Oregon State Capitol, using his keys to be able to enter the governor's office and even sit in the governor's chair. In 1940, he enrolled in Willamette University after graduating from Salem High School. He graduated from Willamette with a Bachelor's of Arts in 1943. After graduation, Hatfield enlisted in the U.S. Navy to serve during World War II. He served in Okinawa as a landing craft officer. He was also one of the first Americans to see the ruins of Hiroshima. This would impact Hatfield greatly and would color his future opinions on nuclear weapons. After the war, Hatfield briefly studied law before getting a master's degree in political science, I'm sorry, from Stanford University. He then began teaching at Willamette College. In 1950, while still teaching, Hatfield was elected as a Republican to serve the Oregon House of Representatives. He would teach in the morning and then go across the street to be a legislator in the afternoon. One of the more important pieces of legislation that Hatfield sponsored came from his time at Willamette prior to World War II. It was then that he saw his first hand, the discrimination against African Americans. He was asked by his fraternity to give a ride home to Portland to an African American artist who had visited Hatfield's fraternity. At the time, Af- uh, African Americans were prohibited by law from staying in hotels in Salem. Hatfield got his bill passed in Oregon before federal courts or national laws have been passed prohibiting such discrimination. In 1956, Hatfield was elected as the youngest Secretary of State in Oregon history. In 1958, he ran for the Republican nomination for governor. Despite opposition from the party, Hatfield won a Republican nomination. He ran against an incumbent Democrat. The turning point of the election was a win in support of the sitting governor, who had claimed that Hatfield lied about a car wreck when he was 17. A woman had lost her life when Hatfield hit her with a car. He was found to be not criminally at fault, and this strategy indeed backfired when the media and the incumbent governor came out and said that Hatfield was indeed telling the truth. This ended up giving Hatfield the election. Hatfield served two terms as governor, from 1959 to 1967. And in 1966, he announced that he would run for the United States Senate from Oregon. This was a hard run since just 2 years before he had been the only governor in the United in the National Governors Association who voted against President Johnson's plan for Vietnam. At the time, 75% of the US Senate were in favor of the war. Despite This political negative, Hatfield was elected to the U.S. Senate. He would become the longest-serving senator in Oregon's history. During this time, the U.S. Senate, Hatfield was well-liked and was hard to pin down when it came to political issues. He was a Republican, although his voting record showed that he went well against the party when it came to matters of civil rights, nuclear amendments, and abortion rights. He also voted against the 1990 Gulf War often referred to as the First Gulf War. He was one of the only two Republicans in the Senate to do so. After retiring from the U.S. Senate, Hatfield remained active in politics until he passed away August 7, 2011. Hatfield was a member of Pacific Lodge Number no. 50 in Salem, Oregon. All right, well, thank you to our friends over at MasonryToday.com for another great article. As always, we encourage you to go check them out at their website and on social media so you can keep up with those great daily articles on Masonic history. But for now, it's time to jump over and pay the bills. Today's episode is brought to you in part by Masonic Revival. If you haven't checked them out yet, do so today, right after the show, at MasonicRevival.com. You're going to find a great source for some custom uh, Masonic lapel pins, neckties, bow ties, and so much more. You're not going to find this stuff anywhere else. It's exclusive to Masonic Revival and it's great quality. And while you're there, go ahead and use our promo code which is all caps hlight. Doing so will get you free shipping on your entire order. So go ahead and get a couple extra items. You're definitely going to love the quality. Now today's show is also brought to you by viewers like you. We do require additional funding to keep the show going in its entirety and we're also looking to upgrade the equipment and keep stuff growing over time. Um, You know, currently one of the aspects we're trying to do is grow a little bit more so we can do in-person interviews. I've unfortunately had to turn down a few due to the lack of equipment to do so. Everything we have so far is set up for stationary recording in our studio here. So if you want to support the show and see us grow over time and like what you see here, you can do so by going to our website, historicallight.com, and click on the Support Us tab up in the top menu bar. You can uh, support the show safely and securely through uh, PayPal. I'm sorry. Um, Doing so, we greatly appreciate that, and it will encourage and help us to grow over time, get the additional equipment we need, pay for the hosting and uh, website and all that good stuff to keep our operations running. We definitely appreciate all the support you're able to give there. If you don't want to just do a direct donation, you can also get a uh, product of ours, which does help the show. Uh, We have lapel pins for sale as well as T-shirts, and we'll have some other custom items coming to you soon. Now with that, since we've paid the bills, and we've kept the lights on for the week, let's go ahead and jump into the interview for this week, and that is going to be with Brother Walter Hunt, who is the Grand Historian of the State of Massachusetts. Hey everybody, welcome back to Historical Light. We're very pleased to have you on the show today, the Grand Historian for the State of Massachusetts, Brother Walter Hunt. Uh, he's gonna be sharing with us today some of the grand history within his state. Uh, Brother Hunt, if you don't mind, I'll go ahead and sh- send it over to you, let you further introduce yourself and let us know a little bit about your background.
1: Um, sure, I'm, uh, I've been a Mason 29 years, in March 1988, and uh, in Norambega and Brookline Lodge, which is now Norternity fraternity lodge. I was master there two years in 93, 94, and 94, 95 affiliated with another lodge that was master in, in Mount Hollis Lodge, Holliston, uh, 99, 2000, and 2005, 2006. And in each lodge I've served a year as Senior Warden Acting Master for practically the entire year. So I've actually sat in the uh, sat in the fine chair six times, which is about four times too many,
0: <laughs> but it's okay. So you know the hot seat all too well.
1: Yes, indeed, and I was, a, um, I was appointed Grand Historian, a job which has no real precedent in Massachusetts and isn't in the Grand Constitutions by Grandmaster Richard James Stewart in 2012. And uh, they invented the job for me and gave me an apron and collar and everything.
0: Wonderful. We're well, very glad they uh, put you in that position as uh, I was able to come up there around the Masonic, uh, Masonic Con time and get a tour yeah. of, uh, of the Lodge there. Uh, it's very easy to tell that you have a, a huge mind for everything in that building. Uh, it was just nonstop stories, and it was, it was amazing. You were the best person to give that tour, so I'm very thankful for that. Now, what would you say it is that actually interested you in Freemasonry in the first place? What, what's really triggered you to make you join? Oh, great story.
1: <laughs> I had a friend who I worked with when I was in high tech. I'm a recovering programmer, recovering technical writer. Um, he He did what every good uh, Mason's sponsor does he walked and acted as such convinced me, me that what he was was what I wanted to be and he sponsored me into masonry once once I asked the key, the key question which is how do you get involved in this organization uh, in Massachusetts they get a bunch of officers together the master wardens and whoever else they can get to show up and they have what's called a pre-application meeting so they sit around a table and the candidate and the sponsor sit on the other side of the table and they say, ask, ask us any questions, and we'll ask you some questions. And questions were asked. And I asked a bunch of questions. I, I had an interest in history. I asked a bunch of questions, and when we were done, I, I said, thanks. And that was it. And they thought, oh, no, we lost him. So I went home and talked about it with my wife, uh, then of not many years, and uh, decided she, I asked her what she thought about me joining an all-male organization. She said, well, I went to Smith College which is a prominent all-female college. I said, well, if I think Smith College should exist, uh, it's hard for me to object to the idea of an all-male organization. Now, of course, the scale of things is somewhat Uh different and the context is somewhat different, but uh, it was nice to have that endorsement. And I think any Mason-to-be should always make sure that their significant other is kept informed and is kept apprised of what it is that that person is getting involved. Uh, then I, I called back my sponsor and I said, okay, let's do it. And he was like, oh, we thought we'd lost you. <laughs> and of course they hadn't lost me. And I uh, I received the degrees the following spring. And it's been pretty much a nonstop uh, roller coaster since then.
0: Wonderful. Well, we're definitely glad you, you made that leap into Freemasonry. Now, by the sounds of it, it sounds like you're maybe the first Freemason in your family, or do you possibly have a... Uh... Masonic history, either in Blue Lodge or affiliate bodies throughout your family history that you're aware of.
1: My father's family had some, uh, some uncles and cousins who were, uh, members of a lodge here in, in the local area. But my father was not a Mason. My grandfather who's, uh, who died before my father was born was an odd fellow. Okay. In fact, he was buried by the odd fellows. They gave a big, uh, a funeral procession for him in 1921. But really Freemasonry was not something that I, uh, was interested in embarking upon until i had this meeting with a uh, with a colleague so uh, i don't come from a masonic family se, but my daughter's a, a rainbow girl so, okay. so I'm for that going forward we'd ask again
0: well thank you so much for sharing that uh, that personal family history with us now we're going to kind of jump over to the main topic for tonight uh you're going to be sharing uh the history behind freemasonry within your state uh, if you don't mind brother I'll go ahead and turn it over to you if you want to share some of that with us well, where to begin?
1: Freemasonry has a long and story history in Massachusetts. We go back to the 1730s and the first establishment of a provincial Grand Lodge in North America, whatever the guys from Pennsylvania tell you, uh, was set up in Boston in 1733. A merchant tailor of Boston named Henry Price went to England to try and obtain a charter for a group of masons who had met only in occasional lodges in the Boston area in the 1720s and early 1730s. He came back with more than he bargained for as he was appointed provincial Grand Master of Boston and environs, and as a result had the power not only to make masons, but to make lodges to make masons. And he constituted uh, what was then called First Lodge Boston in July 1733. First Lodge was as described the first lodge in in North America, but it soon became first among a large number of lodges, all down the Eastern seaboard and into the Caribbean. (coughs) Massachusetts is responsible for the first lodges in every New England state, including Maine, which of course was at that time part of Massachusetts. In the Maritimes, in Quebec, in New Jersey, in Maryland, in both Carolinas, we dropped a lodge in Virginia, which we lost track of, and the Virginia people don't know anything about it except the one line in the proceedings where it's mentioned. Uh, and uh, uh, we also have granted dispensations over time to lodges all over the place, Hawaii, San Francisco. We chartered a lodge in Bridge Guiana, we chartered a lodge in Puerto Rico, we chartered lodges in Panama, at the time of Canal Zone. And in Chile, and of course Guantanamo Bay is our watch too. And we have one in Japan, used to be part of our China district. When, uh, when the, to return back to the the ancient times, when the Provincial Grand Lodge was established, it was largely a, uh, it was largely an organization of gentlemen and of uh, people who were prominent in society. There's a place in Boston called Rose Wharf, which a lot of people know about. That's named for John Rowe, who was our Grand Master for about 20 years. He was the one, two, three, fourth Grand Master. Fourth Grand Master of Masons in Massachusetts. Uh, the artisans were left without really a representation. And after a while, they got tired of that. And they petitioned to Scotland. They position. Scotland. Uh, 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 Shalto Douglas to obtain a charter for themselves. And that was where the lodge of St. Andrew came from this lodge was largely ignored by the Englishmen, who really didn't like the idea that Scotland was invading their territory. Hmm. And after a dozen years of that, of that sort of thing, they got really tired of it. And so they petitioned Scotland to obtain a provincial grandmaster of their own and they got it. That was Joseph Warren, famed in, uh, in local history a soldier, a doctor, a gentleman, and uh, he was the first Grand Master of the Provincial Massachusetts Grand Lodge, as opposed to St. John's Grand Lodge. He fell at Bunker Hill, and subsequent to that, the uh, the men of the Provincial Grand Lodge were at a loss as to what to do. They couldn't really petition Scotland to get a new Grand Master, as had happened in each, previous time when the English Grand Lodge needed a Grand Master. So they decided to elect one of their own, and they did. And in so doing, essentially declared their independence from Scotland and established an independent Grand Lodge. Uh, This situation prevailed for about 20 years. Both Grand Lodges existed side by side. There was some interaction, but of course there was the revolution going on. And in 1787, both John Rowe and Joseph Webb, who was the Grand Master of the Provincial Grand Lodge, died. And subsequent to that, the, uh, the the primary people in each Grand Lodge began to negotiate the possibility of, the, of a union. It took them five years, and in March 1792, they joined and created the United Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. A very interesting uh, demonstration of trust, because in order to form that new Grand Lodge, all of the... Grand Officers of each Grand Lodge resigned all at once and relinquished their seats and then elected new, new Grand Officers. Uh, it was a leap in the dark, but of course, America was a leap in the dark. And that, that seems to have worked out as well. Uh, The United Grand Lodge took bits and pieces from each Grand Lodge, wrote its own grand constitutions and also did one thing which is probably the most the most notable thing that's characteristic of our Grand Lodge. Rather than argue about who got what number, they simply abolished the idea of numbers entirely. So we have no numbers in our grand jurisdiction. So people ask me what's the what what Lodge number I have, I always have to shrug shrug my shoulder and and say, you don't have them. There's, uh, there's 200 more years of history, and uh, 88 Grand Masters, and lots to tell. I could tell you a story about each one, but we'd run out of time fairly quickly. I think there's a certain number of trains I can take to get home, so I'll leave that in abeyance. But I have chronicled a considerable amount of that on the website, which I guess we're going to talk about subsequently.
0: Yes, definitely. Uh, we we'd uh, discussed your website while I was up there uh, visiting the library personally, and it is a uh, it is quite extensive, so I, I do want to devote an episode alone um, to that, and definitely guys keep an eye out for the future episode um, covering the website that we're discussing because it is it is mind blowing and you're going to definitely want to see that, but that will be to come now you just mentioned a very unique thing about your state having no lodge numbers that that's pretty epic right there and it's not something you hear of pretty widespread um, Have you guys had any kind of issue with uh you know coming up with separate lodge names and stuff like that throughout the years, or has it worked out better without numbers compared to other states what would you what would you think on that i don't I don't think the idea of numbers uh, helps or hinders
1: anything. Uh, we have had largely um, unique lodge names, although we've had uh, four lodges named St John's we've had two lodges with the name Lafayette uh, we've had two lodges named Union, both of which are old. One was chartered by the uh, St. John's Grand Lodge. Um, No, one was chartered by Massachusetts Independent Grand Lodge. And the second one was chartered after the merger. Um, We have two Mount Horrors. We've had two Mount Hermans. We have uh, a couple of other duplications. But generally speaking, when a lodge has the same name as another lodge, what happens is that it's associated with a town. So there's Lafayette of Roxbury, now Norwood. And there's Lafayette of uh, North Adams, now Lafayette Fairwol.
0: Okay, yeah, that's kind of what I was wondering. With uh, you know multiple names throughout history, if you'd ran into that, so it's very interesting to find out. Now, I I know you said you know obviously we can't cover every Grand Master. Um, the amazing thing about it, you know, just to kind of throw it in there, you guys have a painting of every single Grand Master, at least most of them, uh, going through your your Grand Lodge building uh, with the stories behind those. Will you be able to share maybe your uh, top one or two.
1: They're probably not the same one or two that uh, everybody's top one or two are. If you ask people about grandmasters, they'll name the grandmaster who was grandmaster when they took their degrees, or the guy who's the grandmaster now, or or they'll say Henry Price, or they'll say Paul Revere. My favorite grandmaster is probably my top you know, all-time great grandmaster is probably Melvin Maynard Johnson, who was grandmaster from 1914 to 1960 and was Sovereign Grand Commander of the Northern Masonic Jurisdiction at Scott Wright for over 20 years uh, during a very crucial time in its development. Johnson was also the head of the uh, Foreign Relations Committee for our Grand Lodge for a good long time. After the, the Second World War, he, along with a very small number of people around the world, helped establish and um, and clarify the returning Grand Lodges that had to be established in places like Europe and South America uh, and Africa and Asia. Uh, Johnson is one of those guys who is incredibly influential. And he wasn't just just a prominent Mason. He was a jurist. He brought Roscoe Pound in as Deputy Grand Master. Rusko Pound is a remarkable legal scholar, well known as Harvard, Harvard Law School. He was a writer. He wrote a the, the book on early Freemasonry in America. And uh, was a, uh, an investigator of all things Masonic. He was really a, an extraordinary mind. And he was past Grand Master for a very long time. He died in 1957. So Melvin Johnson is one of those guys. Um, another guy who was a 20th century guy is named Joseph Earl Perry, who was also a writer and also a lawyer. And uh, was a prominent member of uh, the House of Representatives, the Great and General Court of Massachusetts. Uh, Perry was Grandmaster 38 to 40 and again was Grandmaster uh, past Grandmaster for about 40 years after that um, His writing resonates even today and he was involved in this the composition of the Declaration of Principles which is fairly widely known now but were, we're released under his watch um, I'm a big fan of Joe Perry. Uh, the last guy I mentioned is a guy I recently did a biography of in our magazine Herbert H. James, who was Grandmaster in 1969-71. Uh, James was a very forward-looking man in terms of uh, the relationship of the uh, uh, of the races here in Massachusetts. He sat down and had lunch with the Prince Hall Grandmaster in 1971, 25 years before we actually recognized Prince Hall, and he took a lot of flack for that. Uh, his most outstanding achievement in that realm, I think, comes as a result of the initiation of a young black girl into a, a rainbow assembly here in Massachusetts in 1970. The direct result of that was the Supreme Assembly came and pulled their charter. Um, Grandmaster Jane stood up for that. He had no skin in the game. He stood up for that in Grand Lodge and said that he thought that was an incredible wrong, that his daughter had been worthy advisor of her rainbow assembly, and that it would be a terrible thing if he had to withdraw recognition by the Grand Lodge in Massachusetts and close all the Masonic buildings in Massachusetts to rainbow. And he kept at it for almost a year because the governing body had decided that uh, in order to be a rainbow girl, you had to have no trace of, wait for it, Ethiopian blood. Mm. That was the term they used. That was 1971. They changed their rules because Herb Jane stood up for a young Girl, in the middle of the state, with nothing to gain and a lot to lose, because that was a very troubling time. I mean, the Early seventies were very, very tense, and not just in Massachusetts, but everywhere. Indeed. This was the time of the busing crisis and the time of race riots and things. And, and he showed remarkable uh, fortitude, and I considerably admire that. So those are my those are my top three picks. There are plenty of others, but those 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 are the guys I'd start with. Wonderful.
0: Now, besides grand masters that that region of the country obviously is the birthplace of uh, Freemasonry. Some very powerful histories up there. What other uh, you know very well known masons are there within your state um, throughout history that you could uh, just think of off the top of your head? Well Paul Revere comes immediately to mind indeed he's
1: a big name, and as a result of his involvement with the fraternity. Fraternity grew considerably. In Massachusetts, uh, there are a number of lodges that bear the title Paul Revere Lodge, although the lodge named Paul Revere Lodge is not one of the Paul Revere Lodges. It's just a little confusing. uh, Paul Revere chartered 25 lodges during his three years as Grand Master, 1795 to ninety-seven, and 20 of them are still around, two in May. Uh, There uh, they're very long-lasting, and Revere's effect on Freemasonry in Massachusetts is, long, is also long-lasting and has uh, has been around for for more than two centuries. When you look at Freemasonry in Massachusetts, one of the first things you looked at. Uh, but He's not the only one. Um, Isaiah Thomas, who's probably best known as the printer who printed a, a, a newspaper called The Massachusetts Spy, hmm. the first print the Declaration of Independence. Uh, he was Grandmaster four times. And he also founded the American Antiquarian Society. And you think my library is cool. You should go up to Worcester and check their library. Uh, Isaiah Thomas's uh, print shop is actually at Old Sturbridge Village, which is a uh, reconstructed 19th century uh, town in the the state. It's a museum. Uh, Thomas revolutionized a number of things. Uh, in terms of the printing industry, and he's famous for having written, uh, written the uh, history of the printing industry. He also, uh, uh, let me think of what to say. This is the part to cut out. Um, he is also responsible, uh, for being a, a printer of seditious material during the revolution. In fact, he has print, uh, his, uh, so key and his press had to get out of Boston real quickly, which is why he wound up in Worcester. <laughs> Old number one, which is in, at the Antiquarian Society, was called by the British government, the Forge of Sedition, which I think it's a wonderful term. We, uh, uh, in Massachusetts, we count Samuel Parker Lawrence, for whom our library is named, as a, a great patron of the arts. He was a, a Civil War general and a railroad man. Uh, also, a scholar and a collector, and a lot of what we have in the library is due to his efforts and his activities. Uh, now you put me on the spot. <laughs> uh, a lot of people who are known within our uh, within our our fraternity are not as well known outside of it. But you know, we count we count a number of uh, prominent uh, prominent figures as Masons who didn't necessarily serve in capacities that are, are important in the fraternity. Uh, Shaquille O'Neal is a Mason. Probably the tallest base. Uh, He's is Prince Hall mix. In the '30s and '40s, there were a lot of sports figures who were involved in the fraternity. Uh, Bobby Dora was an All-Star second baseman for the Red Sox. He was a member of my lot. I found his record in, my, in, in, our, in our, uh, our secretary's records, and I thought that was pretty cool. That's amazing. Calvin Coolidge mason also. Uh, of course. Uh, of our uh, Bush, who is a prominent uh, top scientist, he was, a, he was a, a member of the Harvard Lodge. And it's important because then we see the Harvard Lodge, not just Harvard Lodge. And of course,
0: uh, I think I'm pretty pretty much out of examples. That's all I can come up with on this Not spot. a problem. Well, right behind you, we have a, a small glimpse of the beautiful Grand Lodge Library of the Grand Lodge, Massachusetts it's yeah there, there's no uh, no giving injustice to the camera you guys have to make it there and check out the library in person now being the grand historian and getting to have that as your office which i'm insanely jealous by the way <laughs> okay what are some of your uh your favorite items that you've gotten to uh to look over within your library what, what are some of the best stuff you got in there um what are some of our favorite volumes well we have
1: the we have the warren family bible and it's a very interesting um, 17th-century Bible that belonged to the Warren family, uh, just Warren John Warren. It has marginalia, so it has annotations on the on the pages. And part of it was printed in 1614, and part in 1615. And that's pretty cool. It's printed in England. We have three or four copies of Anderson's Constitutions. I think I, I showed you the uh, the scrapbook one we have, which is a 1723 Senate printing. Uh, that's pretty cool. People always say, what's the oldest book you have in the library? We have a we have a, a book all in Italian about the islands of the world, which dates from 1576. And as far as I know, that is the oldest book we have in the library. So you come look at that, it depends on how good your Italian is, if you read it a little bit. Uh, We have a vast collection of French Masonic books and an equally vast collection of German Masonic books. Uh, and in some cases, we suspect that there are only one copy of some of these because of the ravages of well, the, de- the devastations of war and the, uh, the cruel, cruel hand of, of ignorance. Uh, as a result, we're protective of our foreign language collections. The question is, uh, what we're going to do with it all and where we're going to put it all, <laughs> and that's a challenge. I have a book in the 1650s, which is a history of the Templars all in French. Really remarkable volume we have uh we have some manuscripts of Augustinus cure uh, we have one hockley that isn't found anywhere else Frederick hockley was a british mason who did a lot of translations of esoteric texts and we have a volume of his that is not to be found anywhere else in the world wow we've kicked around the idea maybe doing a reproduction a subcase edition of that that requires us to decide we're going to spend the money that uh, would be required to do that properly. We don't want to do it unless we do it properly. Right. So those are probably some some uh, signal examples. We also have uh, we have John Paul Jones's letter book, which I don't know if I showed you when you were here. It's authentic handwritten, and it's all in French.
0: I, I can't remember uh, exactly, but uh, there were there was several that you showed me, and I was just kind of basking in the glory of it. It's just. <laughs> it, it, it's it's really cool. I mean, it's unexplainable to be, you know, face to face with some of these old documents that are just original. Like, you know, my lodge only goes back 150 years and I get, you know, astounded at some of that stuff. But to be in a building that has history going back to the beginning of Freemasonry within the, you know, the Americas, we know it is just kind of breathtaking. So, you yeah, know, that's why I say okay. I'm really jealous of your job there, buddy. Well, <laughs>
1: uh-huh. I'm happy to be here. You know, my, my degree is in history. I'm a writer by profession and uh, sort of decided I was gonna be a Masonic historian when I, when I saw a need and filled it. Uh, so I'm sort of doing the job that I was actually trained for. Like, what Indeed. do you do with a history degree? You become the historian of the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts. I guess that's, that's the thing to do.
0: There you go. Well, as, as the grand historian and working in there with those, uh, those treasure documents, you'd be a great person to ask. Now, with old documents such as those, what are the techniques you guys are using to preserve those physical copies to make them last as long as they can? We know they're not going to last forever, but all of us have these documents within our lodges. And you know, what, what are some of the best ways you can recommend that you guys are using? And uh, you know, some methods that maybe a smaller lodge would be able to, you know, more afford the budget, but you know, some methods we could use to make those physical copies just last as long as they possibly can.
1: Well, here are two things I recommend. First thing is, don't let anybody say, "Oh, this closet's full of junk. Let's throw it all out." Right. Get in the way <laughs> of the guys that don't understand the, the value of history, because history is thrown away all the time. That doesn't say you have to keep every bookend, every uh, um, you know, every matchstick. It's hard to discern what's worth keeping and what's not. But every jurisdiction has guys who are interested in in. History or have some background in uh, library science, let them take a look. Don't go throwing stuff out without having somebody look at it. That's the first thing. Second thing is, we live in an age of wonders. I always tell my daughter that, and sometimes she believes me. There is a great need to digitize materials that are available. Make copies of stuff. Yes. Make digital copies of stuff. because. Even if the physical copy is destroyed, you still have the the visual. We have um, a fair collection of uh, of microfilm spools of Prince Hall records from the Prince Hall Grand Lodge in Massachusetts. We have
0: stuff
1: stuff that they don't have. And we're slowly looking at the possibility of digitizing all of that. Uh, Lodge records, people are doing lodge records. I know you mentioned you're you're looking at doing that for yourself. Yes. Um, We're one of the objectives of uh, uh, long-term objectives for me is to get a, a microphone reader that allows me to uh, create digital images of, of the microphone stuff that we have here uh, I'm also trying to scan pictures and identify them we have lots of pictures and the problem one of the problems is that you get you have a picture and it's of uh, three guys standing around once Everybody who's in that picture is gone, and everybody who knows everybody in that picture is gone. That picture ceases to have historical value because nobody knows who it is. Right. One of the things I've been able to do is doing all this historical work is to be able to know what people look like. So if I see a picture of Joe Perry, I say, oh, that, that's Joe Perry as Grandmaster. Well, our Grandmasters wear a distinctive hat when they're Grandmaster. They wear a tricor. So if I see a picture of a grandmaster in the tricorn, I can nail it down to his term. I got a, a picture. Of, uh, somebody up at the Scottish Rite Museum in Lexington sent me a picture. It was a picture of a grandmaster and a bunch of officers all sitting around. And uh, they were holding a corn line and oil, so it was probably some sort of Which said I don't know what this is. Um, it says Ramsey on the back. That's it. So I think it's from the 20s. I looked at it and I saw the Grand Master and said, well, that's Arthur Dow Prince. So I've nailed it down to 1920 to 1922. Then I look and I, I grab my magnifying glass and identify the Deputy Grand Master. That's a guy named Harry Pollard. So now I know it's 1920. And then I think, well, okay, it's a large dedication of the cornerstone life because they have the implements for that. And I looked in my, actually on my website, I looked essentially in the proceedings, figured out which things that it could possibly be and then I started looking at everybody else who was in the picture, one of whom was a guy named Ramsey, who was our Grand Treasurer, who had a very distinctive, you know, mustache. So that's, that's the Ramsey. And there were district deputies in the picture, and I identified one of them who was later a, you know, Grand Warden. So now I knew which lodge it had to be. So about 10 minutes later, I sent her an email, and I said, oh, this is the dedication of the, uh, the building for Tyrion Lodge in Gloucester in May 1920. Beep, 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 call. How would you figure that out? And I told him. So there is the possibility of figuring out after the fact if you have a picture. Right. So all that does is emphasize the concept of don't throw stuff away. Now in the library, we use, uh, where possible, we use uh, uh, preservation quality things, acetate uh, uh, sleeves and folders and things, just because we want acid-free. We don't want things to decay. Really, all you the best thing you can do is get things organized. Sure. So if you have a stack of paper, if it's been sitting in sitting in a damp basement, you may have already lost it. So we try to keep things dry and temperature controlled where possible. I have a big basement full of stuff, which I don't know if I showed you. Can I take you down to the basement?
0: I don't think so. I feel a little cheated right now. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's in a, I'll I can
1: send you a picture of it. It's an amazingly not well temperature controlled, not not climate properly climate controlled area, and we have 18th century stuff down there waiting to come to the library.
0: Ah, I'm booking a plane ticket right now. <laughs> on my way. <laughs> Those are my favorite spaces, though. I, you know, I, I've mentioned on a couple other episodes. I used to do. Uh, kind of new construction well not new construction uh construction work with uh security cameras and stuff and we'd get to go into these old buildings that have been transformed into uh you know new businesses and stuff and a lot of these historical parts of the building just been covered over and uh you know running wire and whatnot you'd get to go in these secret little passageways that have just been you know unseen for decades oh yeah and you're just surprised at the stuff that's left back there boxes and you know all kinds of stuff just you know been sitting there untouched for years and those those are my uh those are my kind of treasure troves, especially, you know, you get into a lodge and you open up a drawer or something, you can tell nobody's touched it for years. I'm there. That's, that's where the good awesome. stuff's at.
1: Astounding stuff down there. Yes. Uh, I've recovered and cataloged a whole collection of German Masonic rituals, some wow. of them beginning of the 19th century. And I do read German. So, um, reading through it, I'm getting a feel for what their ritual and their, their presentations sounded like and looked like. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting and insightful. We have a lot of French ritual uh, as well And uh, I know there's more down there that I haven't quite quite put my arms around yet But uh, uh, I I trust that it, that it will not escape my uh, my notice uh, We have a wonderful two-volume set of uh, history of the Crusades with Gustave Doré illustrations that I found on a shelf and I brought up here I have a map, which I also may have shown you, which is a map of the French empire in 1809, which shows all the lodges in the French empire. Wow. That's on display because I, I decided that that we had to see. I found a uh, a piece of uh, stationery that had, a, had the seal of the Grand Lodge and a ribbon and the signature of Isaiah Thomas that was presented to one of our past Grand Masters by Melvin Johnson. So the, the accompanying um, letter Plus, this, this, it was just sitting on a shelf. I you oh, got to put that in so that's has covered. Um, I'm constantly rediscovering things. So, so even in a place where we're sort of devoted to the idea of, uh, of maintaining, preserving, and displaying uh, historical artifacts, we're always finding new, new old things. So yeah. uh, uh,
0: those things are out there. And, uh, and again, I
1: don't let anybody say, we've got to clean this closet out, get rid of this truck. That will be back.
0: <laughs> Indeed, and you know, I I would also say that it's and I've mentioned this before, um, but you kind of got to harp on it. It's also important to pass that history down, um, because those stories that you know the past masters and stuff have already told, um, it's it's you know in their minds maybe fresh. They know about it. It's old news at this point. But the new guys coming in that are the future of the lodge may not know those stories. And if you don't pass that information down, it's still going to disappear. So it's it's important that we inform our brothers, like you say, in rediscovering new things all the time, um, you know, keep your brethren informed of, of what you have, what you're aware of, so that, you know, you can discover that new stuff, but retain that, uh, that history that you already have and not lose it. Uh, when vote
1: for a generation that is interested in it,
0: which
1: exactly. is good. Exactly. We, people who are interested in the, in, in the, the, the shared culture and the, uh, the stories that are passed down. Uh, that's been done in other, in other realms. Uh, I'm reminded of uh, um, Boswell's uh, uh, *The Glory of Their Times*, in which he went out and int- uh, interviewed uh, baseball players from the 20s and 30s and got their stories. And of course, all of those guys are gone now. Right? But, you know, you Billy Herman and 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 Marquard and all these different guys from the early part of the 20th century, and found out from them what their impressions of baseball on big baseball, fan, but. Uh, uh, we can do that for our own lodges. I find that now I belong to a lodge, which is a merger of two merged lodges. And everybody in the officer line now comes from a period after that last merger, I have a ritual book which belonged to the guy who was my chaplain. And he was, uh, he died 16, 17 years ago, but I still have, that's my lucky ritual book and, but nobody knows it. We need this guy. And I remember him telling me stories of the you know, how he saw the very first automobile in North Dakota when he was about five years old. He was born in he was born in nineteen oh eight. And so he experienced a different part of the century than I did. But we had some years in common. And I don't want the memory of this this tremendous man, this Mason, to, to pass from memory because people don't know him. Indeed. A group of our officers went down Monday night, I could I can be with him. Uh, to attend a lodge down on the Cape, where one of our past masters is retired, and they think this might be his last time in lodge, because he's 97 and he probably doesn't, isn't going to be able to get out again. And they got a chance to sit in the lodge with this, this tremendous guy. Uh, he always had stories to tell, and the guys who grew up in Newton had him as a gym teacher 40 and 50 years ago. And, uh, and their fathers had him as a gym teacher. And this is, this is the kind of guy that, that uh, has been there and done that for just about everything. Man, I met him during our merger. I got to know him closely during our merger in 2001. And uh, I like to think that these guys are the guys who who did the work with the working tools that have allowed us to continue to do the work that we're doing now. We should remember them, not just because they're portraits on a wall that I can tell you about. Right. That's where the real work is done.
0: Definitely. There's yeah. There's so much there to discover and honor. And, you know, our our brethren are worth it. Um, you know, even though they're gone, uh, they're honoring their memory and keeping that alive as best as we can is definitely worth it. Um, so I definitely admire the work you do, brother. I want to thank you uh, so much for the time and dedication that you put into the craft. Um, within touching on that, you know, obviously we're talking about keeping the physical copies alive as long as they can. But like you said, and like I've said before, those documents are not gonna last forever, and we never know what's gonna happen. Uh, Masonic lodges, for some odd reason, are plagued with fire and floods and everything else. Um, and those documents could be gone tomorrow uh, at the snap of a finger, and we just don't have them anymore. So digitizing is number one key. And we, we've tried to start that at my lodges that you know, I, I told you, um, made it through a couple books, but there are just, you know, so many to get through. So I'm, you know, hopefully we can get that done as quick as possible coming into the future though. Um, do you guys have any, uh, any special, uh, incentives put into place for better keeping today's history with the, uh, the new technology and stuff that we have on our fingers today? You know, you look back into the history, I'm sure you're well aware. You look into a minute book. And the minute book really tells about, you know, yay much of the true story of the lodge. Um, You know, an example I've I've shared with my lodge before is our original lodge burnt down in 1906. They rebuilt in the same spot in 1907. Right after they uh, had the lodge built, first meeting they're talking about, we need to discuss renting the downstairs. The very next meeting, it's we need to figure out the lease since we sold the entire building to make sure that we're able to rent the upstairs and still have a lodge. Huge gap in history right there. Um, do you guys have anything in place to better keep today's history in a digital means, um, incentives you know, pushing video, um, video interviews of, you know, members and past masters or anything like that. And do you really see any, any gained importance in that? Um, actually, We don't tell stories as much as we used to.
1: If you look at our proceedings, for example, from 50, 75, 100 years ago, we had more biographies, more memorials, more law histories, more data, more pictures. Mm -hmm. Nowadays, the proceedings are regrettably bereft of that because we we are not as literate a society as we were. So that's one problem. On the other hand, we have resources we never had before. Just an example, Ancestry.com. I mean, what a cool site that is. I've been able to look up people who are involved in a, in a petition for a lot and find something out about them that I didn't know. In one case, uh, I discovered someone had a picture of a prominent, uh, permanent member of Grand Law And I, I got that picture, and then I sent them a note on Ancestry, and I said, well, I have some biographical information, We sent it to you. And they were thrilled because that was a connection that they didn't have. Uh, when I was going through some papers that I found down in this down in this basement, I uh, found the record of a petition for a lodge in a place called Worthington, which is a tiny town west of the Connecticut River, uh, out in out in banjo country, as I would say. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's sufficiently pejorative, but uh, Worthington petition for a lodge in 1932. Well. I went through all of the materials and I put something on the website about Worthington and why they didn't get their, their charter and so forth and so on. And then I found the Worthington historical society and I sent them information about this and they were thrilled to have it. And then they sent me some information about some of the petitioners because I had a list of all the petitioners and their Masonic records. And so we were able to, to create information that had never been there because we could bring information from disparate sources that have never been brought together we have that ability now that we didn't have before so in some ways we're at a disadvantage from our more literate ancestors And in some ways we have capabilities that our ancestors could never have had our membership cards were all on um three by five cards handwritten three by five cards or type type ones they were all scanned by the new england historical genealogical society a few years ago and the deal we made with them, if they do the scanning, we have access to the data and they put it up on Ancestry. So now we have all of those records. I have them on my laptop. I have a whole a whole wonderful. Full, of, full of membership cards. And very often because I have Ancestry, I know more than the membership card shows birth and death dates and, right. and who the guy was. And sometimes I'll find a picture. That's all pretty remarkable stuff. Uh, it's a question of engaging a certain amount of forensic research. And knowing how to do that is simply a matter of practice. So I've got reasonably good at it. But I have tools that, you know, that the only other grand historian in the history of our Grand Lodge, Serena Nickerson, would have loved to have 120 years ago. And I got them, so.
0: Well you're a lucky man in that in that fact to be able to have all that at your disposal. It it definitely, you know, you're like you're saying they were able to scan all that in. That that makes the world of difference when it's coming down to actually uh doing research today. Uh it's a huge time saver. Uh it's, it preserves it. Um so many people can access at the same time from different locations. So uh yeah, digitizing uh your information is just it makes a world of difference and it, it guarantees it for the future. Uh so that's a great way to go. Now, as we're kind of pressing on time here, as we're wrapping up, where has the uh, Grand Lodge of Massachusetts came since its beginning, and where do you see it going? What's What's new with you guys?
1: Well, we're actually in sight of our 300th anniversary. this coming weekend. We're going to be commemorating the 300th anniversary of the, the premier Grand Lodge, uh, June 24th, 1717. All right. And ours ours is in 2033, and that's that's actually on the horizon now. Uh, we're, uh, we've made a lot of changes in the last few years. We're going through a period of uh, declining membership, like everywhere. Indeed. But we're getting younger, which is partly due to the fact that the greatest generation is dying off. There's not much we can do about that. But we're, we're attracting younger, younger men, which I think is very exciting. We got lots more guys who have darker hair than I do, which is good. I used to be one of the young guys, <laughs> but that means that we're getting people come to the master's chair way sooner than used to happen. Uh, we're going through situations where lodges have to do with building uh, that they might or might not be able to manage. Uh, I foresee continued com- contraction of the total membership, but I think that the level of engagement is going to increase in a way that it's never increased. We look back to the 20s, and we may talk about this in the roundtable you mentioned. We look back to the 20s, we had significantly larger numbers of members, but the participation rate, the retention rate, people who came back to lodge and were part of the uh, part of the lodge community, it's about 20%. Nowadays, it's about 20%. It's, it was masked by the fact that 20% of a lodge of 400 you know, it was, it was, uh, it was 80. 20% of a lodge of 100 is 20. So the sidelines look a lot more bare, but as a percentage of the total membership that's involved, it actually hasn't changed that much in a 100 years. If you go to someplace like England, where they have very, very small lodges and, and where they allow them to fade out of existence, which we're cherry about. We don't like to have lodges disappear. Um, they have very, very high levels of participation because if they don't, the lodge vanishes. And lodges reach a certain level of um, sustainability beyond which they can't function, even if they don't have a building to deal. The lodge gets below 10 guys, even if all 10 guys are showing up. That's, that's below sustain level. That, that's, it's hard to convince people to join it. It's hard to do all the functions. It's hard to get people to serve in line offices. So what we need to do is, is capture the notion of what it is that brings us to law. What is our, what is our value proposition? I think we talked about that when you we were up here. We have a tough time with that because people who are in the door who are active don't need to be convinced that there's a good reason for them to be there. It's people outside the door or people who we've just raised that we need to convince this is worthwhile. This is worth your time. This is part. This is something that should be part of your life, and this is why. We have to figure out what that is. That's that's an area in which we try to do more and more. How we open the door and let the light basically come out. We're trying to be more open about that. We give tours of the building. We do promotional work. We have. We try to have more community involvement. We're trying not to be that that weird secret society that has a, that has a big building that we don't let anybody into
0: right
1: our outreach to youth groups our outreach to uh, communities we have a thing called I think of an angel fund you know the angel fund Is I a- have not okay well, so there's a foundation that was set up down in Cape I guess about 15 years ago that actually uh, provides lodges with the ability to set up a separate charitable foundation within their lodge. To respond to requests from community and particularly school venues. If they have a, if there's a child who needs, um, a pair of eyeglasses, an overcoat, uh, maybe a camp membership, anything that the, the, that, a child needs, a lot responds within 24 hours and provides that thing at the request of some intermediary, a counselor, a teacher, administrator. That's their job, is to respond very, very quickly to needs and not to worry about who gets the credit for it, just to do it. Lodges more and more are adopting this angel fund idea, this Masonic angel fund idea, and it's a very, very popular community outreach thing that, we, that we've done. And lodges, even modest sized ones, can do it because they often have a community that they do it. And if they can provide a few things and, and that organization, that school, realizes that they're doing it for, for completely selfless, selfless reasons to, to aid, help aid and assist to do what, what it is we do and be who it is we are. Uh, that's an example of something we're, we're doing that we, we didn't used to do. Our, our outreach used to be to, you know, to Rainbow and Demolay or to, um, uh, to widows and orphans to members of the lodge. Well, we're trying to do that to the community at large and try to be that organization that a town or city is proud to have uh, uh, a part of it. We need to do that more and more because people get all kinds of wrong information about it. But in fact, we don't have 10 Freemasons controlling the entire world. We can't even control deciding what we're going to eat next Tuesday. Every Grand Lodge is sovereign. We can't control things that happen in Massachusetts, even though we'd like to. We certainly can't control what's going on in Rhode Island or Connecticut or Kansas. We don't control the world, but people think we do. People people have all kinds of ideas of what the fraternity is. And in most cases, it isn't. We're a bunch of guys trying to help the world a little bit at a time in this corner of the world, make it a little bit better. So that when we leave it, the next guys can come and do that same thing. We are, we are a charitable, fraternal organization that believes that there are ways to make the world better, and that's what we're trying to do—one guy at a time, one town at a time, one act at a time. Nobody joins the fraternity because Ben Franklin was a Mason. They join the fraternity because Alex Powell is, a and they're impressed with what they see in Alex Powell, or me. Yeah. Uh, that's what we have to emphasize—that we are trying to do this big job in little tiny pieces, but every peace we make every everything we do, every act we, we undertake improves the world a little bit. And they all count and they all matter, just as all of our predecessors and their acts mattered and their deeds mattered. That's what we have to emphasize and that's what we need to convince people who are either interested in or are already members of the organization. Indeed. you don't have to have a fancy apron or a fancy collar. You don't have to have a past master's tool. You don't have to have a prominent role with grand law. You can make a difference one person at a time. We need to get them energized about that, guys, your age, <laughs> He's, he says, paternalistically. <laughs> we need to get guys interested in the idea that, that, that there that there's a positive value proposition in eternity, and they can be part of this cool club that is the coolest club to be a member of. Um, find a place for them to get started. That's that's what we're trying to do here as we're going to continue to do every possible. Is that is is that the answer you were,
0: you were hoping to get? All that and more. I think you really deserve a mic drop after that one. You summed oh, okay. it up very, yeah. very
1: well. Where's my phone?
0: <laughs> well, brother, we are, we are uh, pressing on time. So I'm going to get wrapped up here. I, I want to thank you so much for your, your time, uh, this afternoon of, um, sharing all this history and knowledge with us. It's, it's been amazing. Um, for any of you that can, I really want to emphasize to get out to the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts and check it out. Um, the stuff we've touched on is, is just a fraction of it. To to be there in person and really get to witness some of the history that's in that room behind our brother there is, is truly amazing. Be a part of it firsthand if you have any opportunity to get out there. It's uh, You definitely won't be uh, disappointed by any means. But, We're uh, open Monday, Wednesday, and Friday,
1: roughly 930 to roughly 4 o'clock. Here, uh, we give tours of the building, and we're glad to have people come in. You don't have to be a Mason to come in. You just have to have an interest in the, in the fraternity and in our history, and uh, we'll be glad to reach you.
0: Definitely. Well, brother, thank you so much for coming on the show today, and I do want to turn it over to you real quick if you want to hand out any contact information or a, a website or something so people can get a hold of you or the Grand Lodge better.
1: Uh, you can find information on the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts at, at massfreemasonry.org. And you can find my website at masonicgenealogy.com, and I expect there'll be some sort of link available with this with this podcast.
0: Most definitely, we will uh, we will have the links uh, available on the website and Facebook and everything like that, so you guys can definitely uh, have easily uh, easy access to those. And uh, stay tuned because we are going to have Brother Hunt back on the show. Uh, to talk about that very website he just linked you to and uh, go in depth on just what that is and how you can best use it and how we can improve it state to state. So stay tuned for that. And brother Hunt, I want to thank you so much once again for coming on the show today and sharing some historical light with us from your part of the map. Great pleasure. Thank you, brother. Thank you, brother. You take care. All right, well, I hope you guys all enjoyed today's interview with Brother Walter Hunt, the Grand Historian of the state of Massachusetts. Uh, He was a pleasure to sit down with. He's another one of these guys that you could just talk to for hours and hours. He has that much information inside of him, and, you know, just it never gets boring, at least to me. Um, We do hope to have him on the show again soon uh, to talk about a couple different topics, but one of those is being his website, uh, Masonic Genealogy. So definitely keep an eye out for that. He will be back on Historical Lights soon. Um, Other than that, we don't have a whole lot of uh, announcements to make. I am going to be doing a speaking engagement later this month, August 19th, in Topeka, Kansas. will be the Midwest Conference on Masonic Education, and I'll have the lunchtime topic there. We'll be covering uh, examining the craft, then, now, and yet to come. So if you're going to be in the area of Topeka, Kansas during the time of August 19th, definitely a check out the website. We have the link there where you can get tickets to this event. It's going to be pretty epic, so I would encourage you to make it. Other than that, we will see you guys soon. Make sure you check us out on the Facebook group, Historical Light Masonic Research Group, and we'll chat there until next time when we continue our quest for historical light. Take care.